greater collaboration, enhanced creativity, heightened agility. Welcome to Agile and Beyond, a podcast for agile enthusiasts, design thinkers, team builders, and organization designers. With practitioners and thinkers, we explore the future of work, the evolutions in leadership mindset, and the revolutions in the human-centered innovation around experience and purpose. In the final episode of a four-part conversation with Erica Lenz, Scrum Master and former poet, evolutionary biologist, and tutor, we discuss what makes Erica unique. We also discuss comfort with the creative process, the prevalence of mental illness in the arts, grounding others in difficult situations, the power of divergent thinking, building bridges, social dancing, choreography, and floor craft, helping others to pivot in order to change the behavior of a team, the benefits of adding emotional content in tech environments, and the benefits in valuing everyone and kinesthetic intelligence. Okay, so... Back to philosophical musings. Oh yeah, so my, I have a German friend. He lives in uh, he lives in Qingdao, China, and he was a really good friend of mine when I lived there. Mm. And he's a brilliant, brilliant person, an entrepreneur, highly one of the most creative people I've ever met. And so we would, I would just love hanging out with him because he, my mind would go a million directions when I'm hanging out with him. And when I told him about the idea, he used to be a uh, an investment banker and worked on Wall Street and worked in London and then he ended up moving to China and it, I think he's running some investment funds there but he's also starting up some business he has a lot of fun and when I told him my idea that I'm doing this podcast for agile practitioner you know I'm going to interview agile practitioners and design thinkers and team builders and organization designers and people wanting to change the world and this sort of thing he said don't ask them about agile that's boring <laughs> he said if you're going to talk to bankers don't talk to bankers about finance who wants to listen to that if if you want to talk to bankers and make it interesting you ask them about politics or you ask them about philosophy absolutely and so I like that so what do you want to know and so <laughs> and so I actually find the most interesting th- for me personally and, and I guess let's just use our own intuition I mean what's interesting to us is going to be interesting to other people I think that's my take I mean if we try to be if we try to please who we think is out there is going to be some audience mm. we're going to lose because we're not going to be engaged ourselves A and B who's going to find it interesting if we're not if we're not interested so let me tell you what I think is interesting about me alright <laughs> and it's going to be a little weird but okay. I, I think it is fascinating that a recovering poet, evolutionary biologist, raised by hippie psychologists kind of person mm-hmm. has a place in the software development world. Because I feel very at home there, and I feel like 
what I bring to the table is an important and valuable complement to all of the analytical problem solving that's going on. And I, I think the, the path in is that writing software is ultimately a creative process. And I'm very comfortable with creative processes and all of their attendant chaos um, and discomfort and, and idiosyncrasies. Yeah, and and all of the <laughs> the personality stuff that goes along with it. I mean. I hung out um, almost exclusively with poets for three years of my life. They are nuts. I mean, diagnosably nuts. Most of them. <laughs> Certified. There is a strong relationship between mental illness and, and, and the arts. And there's a reason for it. Because in order to be truly creative, you need to go right to the edge. You need to... Um, play around with your own perception. You need to um, kill your own darlings, so to speak. And and it's an intense process. So since I'm a survivor of that and I understand it and I'm comfortable with it, I feel like I can be in the room with a team of people who maybe aren't as comfortable with some of the difficulties around being really creative. And I can be a sort of grounding mechanism because I... So I had someone tell me once that one of my skills is that I can deal with a difficult situation as if it's the most natural thing in the world. And I was surprised to hear that. But when he said it, I realized that it was true, that I, I expect difficult situations. And... I fundamentally feel the value in in just letting them be and staying calm and trusting that it will resolve and that we'll learn something from it. So I think that that kind of a perspective probably doesn't grow up naturally in the software development world. I think it's it's something that I bring to it and I and I very quickly see value in having that stance so th this was this was this comfort with discomfort mm -hmm. is something that you gained from the art community hanging out with poets crazy poets yeah and and also having lots of discussions about psychology at the dinner table um I mean, in my family, we focus on um, personal growth as if it's just the thing to do. And I, and I think that's kind of unusual. I think we're a family of divergent thinkers. So, um, you, When you say divergent thinker, you're talking about divergent versus uh, convert. Divergent and uh, versus convergent, as as in a, in a sense of uh, thinking very la like lateral thinking, mm -hmm. where you can get very very creative, yeah. uh, 
brainstorming, playing around with a lot of different ideas, and then you converge later to formulate some something new. Is that in that context divergent? Or? Yeah, yeah, same thing. Except I'm always thinking laterally. So. Um, it, it, it makes it easy for me to see five perspectives at once and value them all and see the commonalities between them so I can help a team converge if they're not seeing the commonalities. If for some reason or another they're stuck in their relative positions, um, I can help build bridges. So it sounds a little bit like a composer and they're, they're yeah. in different instruments in the symphony and you have to bring them together in, in harmony. I, I think of it more as choreography, but yes. And, and well, let's I, hear the choreography one. <laughs> well, so as you know, I'm an avid social dancer. So I, I dance various swing dances, Lindy Hop, um, Balboa, Jitterbug, and I've also danced in salsa. And so there are some wonderful things that happen in social dancing and and for what it's worth the Lindy Hop community is filled with techies um, I do some of my best networking on the dance floor <laughs> um, because Lindy Hop in particular has a lot of kind of analytical thinking around physics and it's great for introverts because you can have this very almost intimate interaction with people um, that doesn't require any talking. <laughs> In fact, talking is discouraged on the dance floor. Um, but while you're there, you have to develop an awareness of where other people are on the dance floor. And Lindy Hop is a particularly vigorous dance where um, people are moving far. It's not, um, it's not like a waltz where you're very closely connected. Um, you're, ex you're extending your arms and just holding a single hand in the center. And so you're very stretched out and it takes up a lot of space. And so what we call floor craft is very important. Floor craft. Floor craft. As rolls off the tongue well. Yeah. And so you have to develop eyes in the back of your head, essentially, and know where all of the people are around you on the dance floor and be thinking ahead to if we do what's called a swing out, which is the extended um, move, it, you have to know where you're going to insert yourself in the larger context of the dance floor. So I have a very kinesthetic experience around a, a particular kind of choreography. I mean, that's more improvisational choreography. But um, I think of working with teams as a sort of choreography. You let people improvise, but you also help them be aware of uh, where other people are on the dance floor and um, how they need to work effectively with other people, how they need to dance effectively with other people. So there, there are times when I think about... Like if a team is experiencing some sort of communication dysfunction, I'll think about, okay, what small conversation can I have? Or what, what observation can I make? What feedback can I give the team that will help them pivot a little bit? 
that will change their perception of the situation and make them ask a question that will maybe change their behavior. So little tiny tweaks. I think of them as leverage or pivot points. How can I help a team do that? And it's it's kind of, you know, a mad scientist sort of experimentation. <laughs> um, so I try to keep my experiments small so that I don't end up inadvertently causing some sort of chaos on the team by asking the wrong question. Um, but through kind of ongoing experimentation with people over time, you can learn better how to talk to them and how to influence them. And I, and I like that stuff. That's interesting. Now, do you... Is it useful in these conversations? Is it useful to share with the individual on the team or the team your vision of this well-choreographed group of people uh, dancing on the floor? Or do you... Or do you yeah, sometimes I talk about it. You can use metaphors to help people kind of grok it in an instant. Um, I also talk fairly transparently about what my goals are with certain things that I'm experimenting with the team. Um, for instance, I might say to the team in a retro that I've noticed that um, they've had some trouble communicating around a particular story or a particular set of work and that I have brought them an exercise that I would like them to try. Um, and then I ask their permission to see if they are willing to do that. And sometimes they'll say no. And I'm learning to be okay with that. Um, sometimes they wholeheartedly jump into it and, and go for it. Um, but if they say no, what that generally means is that they know there's discomfort there and they're not quite ready to dive into it. So um, then sometimes just bringing their attention to it is enough and it will resolve of its own accord. This is this is really interesting to me on on so many different levels. One, when I was a software engineer, there was none of this in in the organizations. There were no scrum masters with the kind of sensitivity that you're bringing to the table. And I, I have had conversations with career coaches about my own situation mm -hmm. and kind of analyzing the environments in which I was operating in and the type of person that I am, I'm, I am. And one coach, one of the most recent coaches that I spoke with said that tech environments are low in emotional content mm -hmm. and that he was saying to me that perhaps you need an environment that has a greater degree of emotional content it sounds like one of the key aspects that, that scrum masters bring to an organization and, and in particular your style you are adding that emotional content which has been lacking in so many organizations for so long maybe I hope so um, I think there are an awful lot of scrum masters out there who do not think like I do and I think they have a perfectly valid approach um, 
and I am extremely cautious about how I introduce this sort of thing. Mostly I find my uh, emotional sensitivity is the word you used. I guess that's probably accurate. I find it useful to help me sort out problems. And I most certainly find it useful for establishing trust. It's easy for me to do that because I genuinely value who people are. I, I, from a very deep place, trust that people, any person on my team is there for a reason, that they're capable, that they are um, someone who's a valuable part of the team. And I think just coming onto a team and believing that can change the room. Being one person on the team who values everybody on the team sets a tone that then allows the rest of the team to step into valuing one another. It's interesting. Do you see... Do you see the connections between people? I'm not sure what you mean. Do you visualize some sort of energetic connection between people? No. Um, I mean, I, my, most of my awareness around what's happening with people is kinesthetic. I feel it. I can walk into a room and know that a fight just happened or that somebody just said something nasty um, because I feel it in my chest. Um, but no, I don't, I don't see auras or anything like that. So it's not about, it's not, it's not visualizing or seeing it. It's, it's actually, it's more of a tactile kinesthetic. Can you actually sometimes feel it on your, on your body or your skin? It's more that I feel the emotion that someone else is feeling. So it's a, it's a high, I think my level of empathy is too high sometimes. It gets in my way. Um, sometimes I find it difficult to have a, a superficial conversation with somebody because I can feel that they're unhappy. Um, and I want to talk about that. Let's talk about uh, why things aren't going well for you. So they have a they have a, a, a blank face or a smiley face, but you can feel that it's conceal- they're attempting to conceal something. Yeah. So I would never say I'm an empath or I'm psychic or anything like that. I think this is just, I don't know, that I read um, micro expressions well and that I have a lot of mirror neurons and I, and I feel I feel what other people feel. Um, I think some of us just have that skill. I think that's probably innate. I don't know how much of that can be learned. I don't think it makes me special. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I'm not. I did. Did I say anything? No. It's visualizing <laughs> energy, and I just. I think, no. Oh. Well, that maybe that's what I was seeing, and so I was wondering if that's what you were because the way oh. you were painting the the story with the peop, the different people on the on the team, 
I'm a more I, I guess I'm a more more of a visual person so I was assuming that you may have seen what I was seeing oh okay like oh there's uh, these two are being attracted to each other oh you know yeah. sort of like magnetic lines or these two are being repelled from each other oh, so you're drawing a picture in your head about it yeah okay I guess yeah sort yeah. of a like these are dots and these represent the team and there's a circle around <laughs> the team and these are a, a unified group you know yeah, or something nice. of that nature okay. I don't know it's just I was just wondering if that's what you were seeing but you you feel it yeah it's yeah. a little boo-boo I guess yeah all right well we've been talking for quite a while this has been a fa- an interesting fascinating conversation I've I've learned a great deal about I've learned thank you I've enjoyed it well I'd love to have you back on and um, how can um, how can people get a hold of you or find you on the web uh if you would like them to. <laughs> um, I'm happy for people to contact me. I guess LinkedIn is maybe best. I do have a website, but it's old and I'm not maintaining it. <laughs> so um, don't go there. It's it's ugly. Um, so LinkedIn is fine. Um, Erica with a K lens L E N Z. All right. Well, thank you very much, Erica. Uh, thanks. It was really nice having you. Nice to be here. This completes the fourth and final episode of a conversation with Erica Lenz. You can connect with Erica, that's with a K L E N Z, on LinkedIn, or catch her tweets at Erica underscore L underscore L E N Z. Stay tuned for this upcoming episode. The second millennial call was great fun with four millennials, including one in India and my co-host Garrett Penna in Belgium. We explored what the next generation finds attractive and healthy in workplace cultures and organizations. As some of you may have already noticed, agileandbeyond.co, that's .co, is currently under construction. Once it goes live in several days, please visit and subscribe to the Agile and Beyond newsletter. Thank you. You've been listening to Agile and Beyond. Visit agileandbeyond.co and subscribe on iTunes. Until next time, keep evolving.